Planet Worker, a world in development. Juba, July 2011. Flying into Juba by air over hills and bush scrub, greened by recent rains, it is difficult to conceive of the impact of the drought and the conflict below. As we taxi in past anti-aircraft gun posts, towards armed soldiers guarding the hastily constructed but unfinished new airport, it becomes clear that we are entering a militarised city. The airport is a hive of barely organised chaos as diplomatic staff, media workers and NGOs jostle for luggage and paperwork with harried looking locals, some returning for the celebrations. There is no doubt though that the authority of the soldiers' uniforms and the gun is paramount here. No one argues when asked to move on. On the surface, Juba is like any other African rapidly expanding bush town, with prefabricated offices and hastily constructed buildings scattered on the outskirts. The air is muggy and we're anticipating a scorching day. Four-wheel drives roll back and forth and the car horns and children's voices provide the audio wallpaper. Securing our accreditation cards turns out to be a scrum. Multiple queues of sweating visitors are waiting for any movement or indication of progress towards the cameras and computer operators, who themselves are doing a masterful job of coordinating between taking photos, checking forms and entering data while being harried by two or three voluble fixes in their ear. We all edge to the front with our invitations in hand, but it suddenly becomes apparent we need a slip of torn paper on which our names are scribbled and an all-important stamp applied. I'm bemused by the show of slapstick bureaucracy so early in a country's life. Luckily, an official materialises as we reach the front of the queue and draws the stamp from his pocket. Two hours later, we're outside clutching our visitors' passes. These will definitely go into the memento box. Welcome to the Republic of South Sudan, beams the receptionist. Many of the southern Sudanese veterans grin in response, and the moment is poignant. Who would have thought that this day would arrive? Dinner on the edge of town amongst colleagues is lively and chatty affair, and we relive the day's events, trade stories and views, and forecast South Sudan's future. Reality returns on the trip back into town in the dark, as we are stopped at three separate roadblocks, manned alternatively by friendly, smiling soldiers and surly policemen, armed, menacing, and clearly in no mood for troublesome visitors. Our spirits lift as we pass an electronic message board in the centre town traffic circle. Countdown to independence. Juba tomorrow will be bubbling. It's three hours to Independence Day in South Sudan and the crescendo is growing. Car hooters and ululating passengers filling the night, complemented by faint sounds of applause and snatches of music from streets lined with four-wheel drives. All day we've been dodging motorcades of dignitaries barreling down the town streets. The more important the luminary, the larger and faster the motorcade, flashing lights and sirens completing the spectacle. Thankfully there's been no shooting, 
as rifles are emptied in the air in a typical African military celebration. Passing motorcycles seem to become more frenetic as the hours pass and the 11 o'clock curfew approaches. Or is it 9 o'clock? No one seems to be bothering now, but in the morning the airport roads were closed and colleagues were unable to make it through to the town from their hotel. Later, they were evicted from their rooms to make way for more important visitors. Fortunately for them, they are able to find alternatives. Tonight is not a night to be looking for a bed in Juba. A quick walk about town earlier in the day presented a town in lethargic preparation. A marching band surrounded by uniformed children practicing for tomorrow's ceremony and workmen putting finishing touches on signs to the event. An afternoon thunderstorm sent everyone scurrying for cover, but only for a short while and within an hour it's clear again. Rumours are the order of the day in the conversation. An alleged assassination attempt on the Vice President's life discounted by those in the know while the defection and potential belligerence of an ex-SPLM general confirmed as fact. We have received a programme indicating a finish of the ceremony at two in the afternoon tomorrow. No one believes this, and we prepare for a long, long day in the sun. It'll be a day full of speeches and parades, but no one minds because this day has been coming a long time. It's a beautiful morning as we congregate outside our lodgings for the trip across town to the Independence Day Parade. Anticipating a scorcher, we all have water, food and sunscreen to excess. The temperature is above 30 degrees before 9 and our suits and ties are already looking damp. Approaching the parade ground, harried and tired policemen direct us this way and that but the line snakes inexorably to the entrance to John Garang's mausoleum, the venue for the parade. It's an appropriate entry point to remind everyone of the struggle to reach this day and of fallen heroes who kept the dream alive. We're lucky in that being early earns us our choice of seat, front and centre and with a view over the crowd. Later guests are directed to their places, VIPs in the shade and lesser luminaries out in the sun. Needless to say, this crowd we're in is in the sun. No matter, this is a day where the weather is a background detail. The delegations are increasing in size and the sitting area gets more and more congested. In desperation, South Sudanese officials are requested by the speaker to vacate their seats for foreign dignitaries. African hospitality dictates that room is made for guests and all get their seats. Standing next to the South Sudanese officials makes me feel very, very short for the first time in my life. The country delegations begin arriving. Most are modest affairs with a couple of representatives alighting from their single vehicles and some even arriving on the shuttle bus. As the arrivals increase, it's clear the heavyweights are coming later. The US delegation is large, but relatively modest. Ethiopia's Meles Zanawi arrives, followed by Kenya's Kibaki and Uganda's Museveni. 
cheered enthusiastically by the crowd. The South Africans win the prize for the most ostentatious entrance, though, as a sizable motorcade of huge black window-tinted four-wheel drive vehicles roars through, shepherded by four military vehicles bristling with watchful South African soldiers and weaponry. Out steps South African President Zuma and a high-level entourage. It's a classic over-the-top show that bemuses most of the crowd, but would not be unfamiliar in the power politics down south. Thousands of flags, banners and colourful dresses create a living multicoloured tapestry. In front, the crowd is well behaved, but further back it's seething and surging as groups of Dinka men bounce and dance to Sudanese hip-hop, pogoing with increasing intensity as the day wears on. The noise level rises as Sudan's al-Bashir arrives, complete with senior members of his government. Finally, the crowd roars a welcome to Salva Kiir, the first president of the Republic of South Sudan. Inevitably, we're behind schedule as the military procession begins a march past, followed by a long parade of organisations, associations and faith groups. They've practised for weeks for this day. The speaker indicates we don't have time and a decision is made to cut it short. The civil society parade is U-turned before it reaches the stand, a sign of where civil society will stand in the pecking order of the new country. Hopefully, this won't be the ongoing tenor of this new government. It's an historic moment as the constitution is read and four copies signed, the flag raised and President Kier affirmed. The congratulatory speeches are not too long, but still tedious as we wait for the main attractions, Al-Bashir and Kier. The Sudanese president's speech is direct and positive, full of congratulations, good neighbourliness and cooperation. You wouldn't have thought they had been at war for years. As expected, Kier's speech is comprehensive, reflective and conciliatory. Salutes to fallen comrades, acknowledgement of the price of struggle, the need to forgive but not forget, and the enormity of the challenges ahead. He calls on his compatriots to dedicate themselves to servicing citizens and rebuilding South Sudanese society. An inaugural president's speech, but with a sting in the tail. He finishes by referencing the suffering of those in Abay, South Kordofan and Darfur. He assures them he will work to achieve lasting peace, but the strength of his statement, we bleed when you bleed, and we will not forget you, will surely draw hours of analysis with its ominous undertone. A cannon fires 21 times and suddenly it's over. The party moves to a temporarily constructed large air-conditioned hall where we're served by a coterie of Ethiopian waiters flown in especially for this occasion. Some of the continent's eminent statespersons are present. South Africa's outgoing president, Thabo Mbeki, is prominent, looking serene and pleased. Some of South Sudan's new neighbours less so, cautious and aloof. We fraternise with the dignitaries and take the opportunity to shake hands and exchange a few words with the heavyweights. Within an hour, 
the party's over for the guests and we dribble out. But for the town's inhabitants, the celebration is just gearing up. For the more experienced African and South Sudan humanitarians and analysts, there is trepidation. Deep social problems, militarized ethnic factions, historical animosities and self-interested neighbors all pose significant challenges to this new government. It will take a national leadership of Solomon-like proportion to forgive and forget and apply wisdom with the unbounded humility to deliver on the new country's promise. We toast to this prospect before retiring for the night.